I hope you will take to heart Carolyn's words on the uh, children's ministry. We really love your kids, and we want to do an effective job of ministering to them. Uh, several years ago, I went back into the men's restroom at the back part of the building. I seldom venture back there, but I happened to go back there on a day when the hall was full of children, and there was a little guy standing in there holding his trousers up with the most woe-begone look on his face I've ever seen. And uh, I asked him what was wrong, and he burst into tears, and I said, what's, what's the matter, don't you like Sunday school? And he said, no, I can't snap my pants. <laughs> so I uh, snapped his pants and gave him a hug and sent him on his way, and he was happy as a clam. And I thought, boy, it just doesn't take much to lighten the heart of these little ones. What a wonderful opportunity we have, not only to encourage them along, but to point them toward God, to give them something more than E.T. to hang on to. Uh, we, can, we can teach them about, about the one who came to gather them in. Jesus said that these little children are are natural believers. They have a natural credulity about them that you and I have lost. As we get older, we get more cynical, and and uh, uh, it's, it's hard for us to believe. But little children just naturally believe. So uh, I would encourage you to think through your schedule this summer and uh, to get involved in teaching if God should so lead you. Now I'd like to have you turn with me, please, to the ninth chapter of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. I have noticed, and, and you probably have as well, that there is a growing trend in the media to lampoon uh, our Savior. Um, it's nothing new for movies and television to ridicule professional Christians, clergymen, pastors, missionaries, and others. And it's nothing new for Christians and for Christianity uh, to be uh, to be uh, parodied, but to uh, to misrepresent Jesus is something something new, at least here in the Western world. It is, I think, part of what the Apostle John would describe as the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of opposition to Christ himself that's pervading all of the media. And uh, it, it's very easy to get caught up in, in that, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's good for us to go back again and again and reread the book of Hebrews, because what Hebrews does is talk about the excellence of Jesus and why it's so important that we center on him and why it's so significant that we worship him. He's better than anything else, as we've seen. Now, last week, we talked about the covenant that he administrates. He has a better covenant. This week we want to talk about the better sanctuary in which he serves and the better sacrifice that uh, he makes. All that in, in chapter 9, actually through chapter 10, verse 18. And that will wrap up the argument of the book of uh, Hebrews. We're not going to take that entire section this morning, just verses 9, 1 through 14. Now, if you were to happen to visit Israel during the years when they were camped in the wilderness on the plains of Moab... Uh, you would probably imp be impressed first by the size of their encampment. They were millions strong. There would be tents as far as the eye could see. But uh, I think the thing that would probably catch your attention next was the presence of a little tent in the midst of 
of all the other tents. Every tent was oriented toward that tent so that when an Israelite woke up in the morning, walked outside his tent, rubbed the sleepers out of his eyes, the first thing he would see was a tent in the very center of, of Israel's camp with the cloud, Shekinah, the, the glory that represented the presence of, of God. In a sense, Israel would look into the face of God before they would look into the face of anyone else. Which, by the way, is a very good thing to do. Moody said that's uh, what he tried to do. First look into the Word, see the face of Jesus before he looked at any other person. It will make you a bit nicer to live with in the morning. And uh, it will make you it make life a little easier when you have to face people that are difficult to live with. That was Israel's experience. They first saw the presence of God. Now, they knew full, full well that God did not actually reside in that tent in any sense that he was localized in time and space. That was a symbol. That cloud that rested over the tabernacle was simply a symbol of God's presence in his people. Now, the tent actually looked like any other tent in Israel. It looked like a little pup tent, or if you've seen a Bedouin tent, it probably looked very much like that. It had a couple of peaks in it, and uh, it, it was... The, at least the outer covering was goatskins. Goatskins in the ancient Near East were black and dark, and the tent was very drab, and it really didn't look any different than any other tent, except it was a bit larger. But there were some things very significant about that tent, and it's this that the author wants us to see. Now let's uh, begin reading with verse uh, 1 of chapter 9. Hebrews 9. Now the first covenant, that is the Old Testament, had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. That's that little tent of which I was speaking. A tabernacle was set up, or a tent was set up. That's all it was, a little pup tent. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place which had the the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's rod that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the place of atonement. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. The first thing you would notice about this uh, little tent is that it was surrounded by a courtyard, 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. This auditorium is just about 75 feet across from this wall to the back wall and about 120 feet long. So if you had about 30 feet uh, or 15 feet to either end, you'd, you'd, you'd get some impression of the dimensions of the, of the courtyard that surrounded that tent. Around the outside was a wall made of linen uh, drapes that hung on a wooden framework. And the wall was about seven and a half feet high. So you couldn't jump over unless you were Jake Jacoby or some other seven and a half foot high jumper. Uh, You couldn't break through. You wouldn't want to. You'd have to come in through the door. And there was only one door, which was located on the east side of the courtyard. The structure was oriented toward the east, toward the rising sun. Now, we're a little bit off because that's north. But if you can imagine that's east, there was one door through which anyone could come. Anyone, a layperson, priest, anyone could come into the courtyard and watch the proceedings. Just about where the uh, circle is, free throw circle, there was located a brazen altar made out of bronze. It's kind of hollow box made out of acacia wood and 
covered with bronze at a grate in the top, and it was there that the burnt offerings were sacrificed. There were four horns on the edge of edges of the uh, of the of the altar that were used to hold the sacrifice down. Actually, the sacrifice had been slain before it was laid on the grate, but still the horns were there to symbolically tie it to the uh, tie it to the place of sacrifice. Then a little bit further, somewhere out in here, there was a, a laver, which was a large basin. Again, it was made out of bronze. Uh, it was used for the washing and cleansing and purification, symbolic purification of the priests. There was a smaller basin at the foot uh, in which the, the priests could wash their feet. Again, this was a, a place of symbolic washing, ablutions, cleansings. Then the third thing your eye would see, the altar, and then the laver, you'd see this little tent. And as I said, it's really a very drab-looking affair, covered with goat skins. But if you went inside, which you could not do in those days because only priests could go inside, you discover inside is very beautiful. The, uh, the hangings, the linen hangings on the inside were embroidered with cherubim, these symbolic representations of angels. You, they used red and purple and violet and blue cloth, and it really must have been uh, very uh, beautiful, aesthetically uh, pleasing. And the framework was a hollow framework. They, each of the boards looked much like a ladder, so you could see through the framework to the embroidered, embroidered work on, on these uh, linen hangings. So it was very pretty inside. I just want to say in passing, I, I, I agree with the author, you would like to spend time on the details, but we can't because there's one central point that the author wants to make, but I would like to say in passing that I can't help but reflect on what John said in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He actually uses the word that's used in the Old Testament for the, the dwelling place of God. He tabernacled among us. And he looked just like all the rest of us. His tent, which was his humanity, was just like ours. Rather drab, not much to see. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, in speaking of the servant of Isaiah, said that there was no look about him that would cause us to look. There was nothing about him that was special in terms of his outward appearance, but he was beautiful within. And we'll see what that beauty consists of in a moment. Now, uh, here's the tent covered on the outside with goat skins on the inside, linen hangings. If you were a priest and went into the holy place, you would discover three pieces of furniture. Now, I should explain this tent's quite small, about 15 feet across, 45 feet in length. It's divided into two compartments. The first compartment was called the most holy place, and it was a room about 15 feet by 30 feet. Just behind the veil, hidden from view, was another room, 15 by 15 by 15, a perfect cube, and this was called the most holy place, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Now, that tent would be located over in that part of uh, the courtyard someplace. Now, if you went through that first veil, and again, you would have to be a priest to do so, you would discover that there are three pieces of furniture in that holy place. Off to the right, on the north side of the, of the building, was a little table, about two feet high, three feet long, 18 inches wide. It had 12 loaves of bread on it, one for each of the tribes. 
that table probably symbolizes God as a resource for his people. He is the bread of life. Jesus picks up on that theme and refers that, that symbol to himself. I am the bread of life, he said. Only the priests could eat the bread. No one else could. On the other side of that first room, the, most, the holy place, was a candelabra. Now, we're accustomed to thinking of the traditional uh, Jewish menorah with the central stalk and the three stalks on either side, the seven-stalked candlestick. Actually, they think that in those days it looked more like a tree trunk with uh, uh, lips that extended out from the central uh, uh, column in a circular fashion. But it doesn't make really much difference what it looked like. It was probably intended to symbolize the fact that God is the one that shows us reality. He shows us things as they really are. It's what light does. Because that room would be dark because of the curtains without the presence of that, of that candlestick. You know how it is. You get up in the morning and it's still dark and you stumble over everything in the room until you turn on the light and then you see where things are. You see reality. That's what light does for us. And again, Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world. He's the one that reveals truth. He shows us where reality lies. He tells us what's real and what is false. Then at the very back of the room, there was a very small piece of furniture, not so big square, about this tall, that was called the altar of incense. There were live coals on top of that altar. The priest would uh, distribute a little bit of uh, perfume or incense over the coals, and a plume of smoke would rise from the altar of incense and fill the room. The book of Revelation tells us that that altar of incense represents the prayers of the saints that are offered up before God. Now, if you were to go into the inner sanctuary, into the most holy place, you would be surprised to discover that there is only one piece of furniture in that inner room. Now, interestingly enough, the sanctuary in which, Jesus, in which Israel worshipped is very much like the temples in which pagans worship. Uh, archaeologists have discovered that their temples had an outer court, and then there was a, a holy place, and then a most holy place. But there was something quite different about Israel's uh, sanctuary. If you went into the, to Israel's most holy place, you wouldn't find an idol. There was no idol there, not a statue of Baal or Asherah or any of the other gods or goddesses of the ancient Near East. What you'd find is a little little box about the size of a footlocker. Now, Steven Spielberg notwithstanding, uh, the, the little box wasn't uh, a telegraph uh, or a radio through which uh, spacemen could communicate with us. That little box was really the center of everything. And the reason for which the whole tabernacle existed, as a matter of fact, if you go back into Exodus 25, and you, and you read the story of how the tabernacle was built, the first piece of furniture that was built was the Ark of the Covenant. And everything else developed outward from the Ark. The Ark was the center of everything. Now, as I said, it was a little box, three and three-fourths feet long, two and a half feet wide, about two and a half feet deep, hollow box, covered with gold. By the way, I also want you to notice the ascending worth of the materials. Bronze, bronze, gold covered, and then finally 
The ark itself, which was gold-covered, and as I want to mention in a moment, the lid was solid gold. Again, pointing out the significance of the ark. Now, uh, the text that I just read tells us there were three things in the ark. If you looked inside, you wouldn't find an idol. You'd find the law on two tablets, little clay tablets about the size that you could hold in your hand. Um, The law was in the ark to show that God is a moral being. You don't find an idol in the ark. You find a representation of God, the invisible God, the spiritual being that we call God, who is a moral being. The law is in his heart. Then there's a little pot of manna. It's about the size of a half-gallon milk carton, which uh, was some of the manna that was saved from the wilderness. Uh, Moses told, well, actually God told Moses to keep some of the manna as a memorial. So some of the food from heaven, the the food that makes men and women strong, is the way the Old Testament puts it, was placed in that jar as a reminder of God's uh, rich, wonderful provision during the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness. There's also a rod about so long, which originally had been a staff, the kind of staff that men carried in those days, women too, I suppose. Uh, The interesting thing about that rod is that it budded. And the reason it budded is because at one point in Israel's history, there was some concern over Aaron's leadership and whether Aaron ought to be the high priest. And so Moses said, this is the way we'll settle this issue. And so he had all the tribes contribute one staff. They just selected a piece of wood, dead as as a dodo bird, had no life in it. And they brought those pieces of wood. They were bound together, placed in the tent. The next day, Moses went in, took the rods out. And Aaron's rod had budded, had leaves, it had blossoms, it had almonds on it. And I don't know how they got that long rod in that uh, three and a, three fourths, uh, feet long box. Maybe they sawed it in half, or maybe it was like a fly rod or something. I don't know. But they, <laughs> but they had it in the box as a memorial. The law, the manna. And uh, the rod that budded. Now, on top of the uh, of the ark was a was a lid, a, a solid gold lid. I have no idea what it would be worth in today's economy. Three and three fourths feet long, uh, two and a fourth feet wide, probably about an inch thick, solid gold. That was the mercy seat, and as we'll see in a moment, that's the place where atonement for sin was made. And because that was solid gold. It is extremely significant, symbolically, as we'll see. And on top of this uh, lid, there were two cherubs. By the way, a cherub is not a baby angel. A cherub is one angel. Cherubim is simply the, the Hebrew plural for two or more cherubs. Two cherubim, these symbolic representations of angelic beings. Their appearance is described in the book of Ezekiel. It had four faces, the face of a man, the face of an ox, the face of an eagle, and uh, the face of uh, a lion. And uh, so these, uh, these symbolic cherubs in no way were in violation of the law. You shall not make an image in the likeness of anything on heaven or earth or under the earth because they weren't like anything. They were just symbolic representations. Because in Old Testament thought, the cherubs were the ones that bore the throne of God. And uh, therefore, this, this mercy seat was the place where God was seated. This was his throne. No, not really. You know, in the sense that if you walked in there, you would see the presence of God. God's a spirit. You cannot see God. 
But symbolically, this was the place where God dwelt, between the cherubs, and some of the Psalms even make that, uh, that point. This ark was the most significant piece of furniture in Israel's history, probably the most significant piece of furniture in all the world until you get to the cross. Now, uh, this ark, uh, let me give you an example of, of how people looked at this ark. David himself loved the ark. See, David was a man after God's own heart. He saw well beyond his time. He realized full well the symbolism of that ark. He didn't see it as a religious relic. It wasn't a piece of furniture. By David's day, it had almost rotted uh, into pieces. But he still highly valued that ark because of what it represented. It represented the presence of God in their midst. That's why when David had subdued all of his enemies, when there were no more enemies to, to battle, he went off to Kiriath-Jerim where, where the ark had been rotting in the woods since the uh, Philistines had taken it away from Shiloh to get the ark, to fetch it, to bring it back up to Israel, to put it on Mount Zion so, again, at least symbolically, they could worship God in their presence. David says something very significant when he went off to get the ark. We did not seek it in the days of Saul, he said. Saul was a thoroughly secular man. Had no interest in spiritual things. None, whatever. David, on the other hand, because he was a man after God's own heart, went after that ark because he saw the significance of it. That's why he says in one of his psalms, One thing I will seek after, that I may be dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold his beauty. Because he saw the beauty of, of, of the coming one of the Christ, in that little little footlocker. Now, th- there was only one day in the year when anyone saw that ark. The priests who took care of the ark didn't see it because uh, when it was moved, when the, the tent was moved from place to place, the Levites would uh, unhook the, uh, the veil from its hangings, and they would place it over the ark, and then they would pick up the ark by the staves that ran through the rings, the gold rings, in the side of the ark. So they didn't see the ark. The only person who ever saw it was the high priest. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, he would make atonement for the sins of Israel on that gold lid. The week prior to the Day of Atonement was a week of contrition and confession of sin. The day itself was a fast day. It's the only fast day in all of Israel's law. Very significant day. Jews today still look upon Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, as their most significant day in their religious calendar. On that particular day, the priest would take off his his robes, his mitre and purple robe, all of the trappings of of his uh, office, this high priest, and he would dress as a a common Israelite in white linen. If it happened today, I suppose uh, it would be analogous to a clergyman taking off his clerical collar and his clerical garb and uh, just dressing in a business suit. It it was a matter of identification. He identified with the people because he was doing for them what they could not do for themselves. First, he slaughtered a bullock, a young bull. And then he took the animal, and it was burned on that 
altar of sacrifice. And then he took the blood from the animal in a bowl, and he symbolically cleansed the temple. Sprinkled blood on the furniture of the temple and on tabernacle, uh, uh, rather, in various parts of the tabernacle. And then he went into the most holy place and he sprinkled blood on the, the top of that little box, that ark. Then he went back out to the front where the people were. And remember last week I told you about the two goats. They took two goats from a herd of goats. They cast lots over the goats. On one, they, the priest laid his hands. He confessed the sins of the people. They took that goat out into the wilderness, and they lost it. Wonderful picture of our sins being, being remitted, being sent away. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Someone came up after the service this morning and told me that there's actually a wilderness area in Montana called the Scapegoat Wilderness Area. And he said it would be a great place to lose a, lose a goat. Well, if you ever go to Israel and you look at the Judean wilderness, that's an even greater place to lose a goat because that's the most barren, desolate region I could ever imagine. You would never find that goat again, even if you wanted to find him. Wonderful picture of how completely our sins are remitted. Then he would take the other goat, he would sacrifice that goat, and he would take the blood of the goat into the, into the tabernacle, and he would sprinkle the, the mercy seat with that uh, with that blood. This is what the, the writer is describing in verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, that is, when the tabernacle was set up and all the furniture was arranged, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Now, the key phrase here is never without blood. Had to be a high priest, and he had to carry blood into the most holy place. A lot of tradition, a lot of wrong ideas, I think, developed out of, out of the Day of Atonement that are not found in Scripture. We're told uh, in some of the rabbinic writings that the high priest practiced for days uh, before, he actually, before the Day of Atonement, so he wouldn't get anything wrong because he was afraid that if he got the slightest thing wrong, God would strike him down. We're also told that they tied a rope around his leg so that if he were if he was struck by a bolt of lightning while he was in the most holy place, they could drag his body out, uh, all of which tells me that they did not really understand the heart of God because the issue was not getting everything exactly right. The issue was bringing blood into the most holy place. Now, what does all this mean? What is the significance of all of this? Well, the author tells us, verse 8. This is his inspired interpretation. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed. As long as the first tabernacle was still standing... In other words, as long as the first tabernacle had any standing. Now, this, uh, when this book was written, the priests were serving in the temple on Mount Zion. This was Herod's temple, which was simply an enlargement, an embellishment on the tabernacle. Every year, they... Uh, they went through this, this ritual on the Day of Atonement. 
And what the author is saying is as long as you're putting your faith in that activity, the high priest going into the most holy place, placing on the, the, the mercy seat, the blood of goats, then there is no cleansing of conscience. Let me read on. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. In other words, this whole thing was symbolic. It was looking forward to the time when our great high priest would himself take his own blood into the most holy place in heavenly places and make atonement for our sin. And what he's saying is that if you're still clinging to that temple, if you still think that's where forgiveness lies, then you're barking up the wrong tree. You'll never cleanse your conscience on that basis. See, now all of us struggle with a guilty conscience. We can all look back on things that we've done and said or shouldn't have done and shouldn't have said that have created an enormous amount of havoc and have hurt others and hurt ourselves, hurt our own reputations. Some of us have destroyed our families. We've done, we've done some awful things. I have. And we look back with an enormous amount of regret to these things. We wish we had never done them, but we did. And we suffer from a bad conscience. The conscience, as someone said, is that still, small voice that makes you feel still smaller. <laughs> Keeps telling us what we've done wrong. Now, I, you know, I, I, I appreciate what psychologists do. There's good psychology out there. But since Freud invented modern psychology, psychologists have been trying to struggle with this problem of guilt. Menninger wrote a a, a book entitled What on Earth Happened to Sin? Some of you may have read it, in which he he raises the question, how do we deal with sin and guilt? It's something we try to sweep under the rug, but we can't. We can't. I think I mentioned some weeks ago a story he tells in the book. In fact, it's the opening. It's in the opening chapter. He's walking with a colleague down the streets of Chicago, and there's a self-styled prophet in the Chicago Loop who dresses in prophetic garb and stands out on the street, points his finger at people, and says, Guilty! 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 And he pointed to Menninger's friend, and he said, Guilty! And the guy looked at Menninger and said, How do you know? <laughs> we just know. That's all. We just know. And what are we going to do about it? You go to psychologists and, and you know, they, they can tell us, that, well, everybody's in the same boat, everybody else feels the same way, and that's somewhat comforting. And they can, they can sort of share with you in, in your struggle, although there is a bit of cynicism in the old joke about uh, a psychiatrist or someone who will love you for $100 an hour. But, you know, there, there really are people out there who really care and, and who want to use the best tools of science and psychology to help you but there, there aren't any answers. How, how do we deal with guilt? What do we do about this terrible encumbrance that we all have, the, the burden of sin in the past that we can do nothing about? And you see what the author is saying? If you're still going to the temple, if you think that's where it's at, you've got another thing coming. Or if you think you're a psychiatrist or your preach, uh, your preacher or your your friend or, or your neighbor or your spouse 
or somebody can free you from guilt, there is no one else. But there is an answer. See? You understand what he's saying? As long as anything else has any standing, then our consciences cannot be cleansed. But there is a way out. Verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, this is our high priest that he's talking about, our Lord Jesus, who is the high priest of the good things that are here. That's, that's the new covenant, this new arrangement for living that we were talking about last week, described earlier in, in verse 8, for I'll forgive their wickedness and I'll remember their sins no more. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. It wasn't made by Moses and his artisans. It wasn't made by Herod and his builders. It wasn't made by any man. He's not talking about some temple off in space. He's talking about the spiritual reality that this tabernacle and then later the temple portrayed. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made That is to say, not a part of this creation. He didn't enter by the means of, by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. When our Lord hung on that cross, the last great cry from his lips was, It is finished! To telestai in Greek. One word. And uh, Greek scholars tell us they find that phrase at the bottom of receipts and bills, and it, it signifies something that's paid in full. When Christ died on the cross, it was a finished work that he did. You can't add to it. It doesn't help to be baptized, circumcised, catechized, Simonized, anodized, you name it. Nothing can add to what he did. It is finished. So we don't have to prove anything to God. We don't have to work hard in order to be more acceptable. We don't have to clean our act up, have more spit and polish. We just have to believe what he did. It's finished. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they're outwardly clean. He's referring to the various sacrifices that were employed to cleanse men and women from defilement of sin, touching a dead body and some of the other, uh, the other regulations of that era. How much more then? How much more then? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience, our consciences from acts that only lead to death so that we may serve the living God. You don't have to go to church more often. You don't have to memorize more scripture. You don't have to read the Bible more. You don't have to go out and witness more. Those are all acts which in themselves only lead to death. They are good things, but they do not touch the heart of the matter. They do not deal with our guilt. The only one that can deal with our guilt is the Lord Jesus. And we have nothing, whatever, to add to the work that he has done. 
Let me read an interesting passage to you. Matthew 27. You don't need to turn to this gospel. Just listen. Jesus is dying. Immediate, uh, when, uh, well, let me back up a little bit. From the sixth hour, that is from noon until the ninth hour, darkness came over the, the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we understand what, that's a rhetorical question. He knew the answer. The answer is actually found in the psalm that he's quoting, Psalm 22. The answer is that he was becoming sin for us. Our sin was being laid on him. The Father was turning his back on him. The one he wanted more than anything else in the world to please was displeased with him because he had become sin for us. When some of those standing there heard this, they said he's calling Elijah uh, because Aramaic Eloi sounds very much like Eliyah, which is the, the Aramaic word for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. One of the soldiers took some of the stock, some of his own wine, and he wanted to dull Jesus' senses. He realized he was suffering. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. But the rest said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to seek him. Those were the thrill seekers, kind of people that want would-be suicides to jump so they can watch. And then Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And what he cried out was, it is finished. Matthew doesn't tell us that last word of Jesus, next to the last word. But that's what he cried. Incidentally, he cried with a loud voice. The cross was not sapping his strength. The cross would never have killed him. He was without sin. He gave up his life. It's not because the cross put him to death. And when Jesus had cried out again with a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, listen to this, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom so that anybody could walk into the presence of God. Layman or priest, man, woman, child, anyone could walk straight into the presence of God because at that moment God's heart was open to everyone. That happened on Good Friday. That wasn't the day of atonement that was celebrated every year. That's what the author wants us to understand. You don't have to go back to the temple. You don't have to go through those repeated rituals and sacrifices. God's heart is now open to you. Those in the Old Testament who were men and women of faith understood that principle. They realized those sacrifices never cleansed anyone's conscience. Those sacrifices simply symbolized the coming of the one the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world because the cross is an eternal event. It did not just happen in time. It happened in eternity. And the value, the fruit of Jesus' death goes both directions in history. Anyone who came to Christ believing, even those who came before his coming, were accepted on that, on that basis. And what does he want us to understand? There is nothing that can wash away our sins except what our Lord did. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done, 
Nothing but the, but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other hope I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Or as Isaac Watts puts it, put it, none other lamb, none other hope in heaven or earth or sea, none other hiding place from guilt and shame, none beside thee. You and I have to deal daily with failure. We all fail. You know, we don't measure up to our own requirements. We don't live up to the expectations of others. And if we lay our lives alongside the perfect life of our Lord Jesus, we certainly come short. But Jesus said, if we, John said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I want you to know what he did not say. He did not say if we confess our sins and ask him to forgive us, he will then forgive us. No, no, that's not what John is saying. Confession is simply the awareness, the acknowledgement that we're sinful people, sinful men and women. And and, and we've stopped trying to cleanse ourselves. And we're simply clinging to the cross and what our Lord has done to us. That's what confession is all about. It's calling sin what God calls it. It's sin. And acknowledging that he's the one that has saved us from sin. He's the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. And John says, his forgiveness keeps on going. As I've said so many times, we cannot outsin the grace of God. His death applies to sins in the past, sins of the present, sins in the future. In other words, our conscience need never accuse us. We can wake up in the morning and we don't have to dig our way out of some pit of despair because of our past. We are now forgiven. There is therefore, as Paul says, no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. We still have to fight the fight. We still have to run the race. There's still temptation to be overcome. But we do so unencumbered by guilt and in shame. Some of you may remember a few years ago, the uh, secular society borrowed a hymn from us, and it was popularized, Oh, happy day, oh, happy day. When Jesus took my sins away, uh, he taught me how to watch and pray and live rejoicing every day, happy day, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. I think they, uh, they started singing it because the tune was so catchy. But I hope some of them listen to the words. Because that, that's the happiest day of our life. We look back to that Good Friday. Which is good because we hear the good news that our sins are forgiven. And we can sing, oh happy day when Jesus took my sins away. Do you know that? Do you believe that? You know it's not good to call unclean what God has called clean. You've been sanctified. You've been cleansed. You've been purified by the blood of the Lamb. Simply believe it. Trust it. I uh, uh, gave up playing golf a number of years ago. The game defeated me. Uh, I'm too competitive, and I discovered that, that I would come back from playing golf more uptight than I went out. So I thought, well, this is not good recreation, so I gave it up. But um, I like, still like to read about uh, uh, golf, golfing greats. And I was uh, reading an article in Sports Illustrated a couple of months ago. 
about the notoriously difficult 12th hole at Augusta. That hole has defeated more golfers on their way to a Masters Championship than any other hole in history, and I suppose the person who uh, looked worse than anyone else was uh, uh, Seve Ballesteros, uh, who in a Masters tournament some years ago carted an 11, I think, or an a 12 on that hole. And the uh, author of the article in talking about it said he couldn't decide whether he wanted to use an 8-iron or a 9-iron or a waffle iron. Uh, but in any case, he, he uh, embarrassed himself before the whole golfing community and before the whole world. And I thought when I read that, uh, it sounds like me, you know. So every once in a while, I card a 12 on a hole. And uh, I'm so embarrassed and I'm so ashamed. And I'd like to undo it, but I can't. But you see, uh, living the Christian life is not playing golf because no one's keeping a cumulative score And if you are, you don't understand the rules of the game. As a matter of fact, with every stroke, you start over. Every stroke, you start over. So you card a 12 on a hole. It's all right. It's all right. You start over in the next hole. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. When Jesus took my sin away. Let's pray. It is very hard for us, Father, to believe that it's really so. We've been taught from childhood that we have to we have to deal with our guilt the hard way. We have to earn atonement. We have to do something that will make us more more acceptable to you, make, render you more favorable to us. And so we try so hard. We do so many good things in the name of, of Christian service and charity. And we just, we just want somehow to erase the past. Thank you for calling it to our attention that it, it's very easy to go through life and miss the whole point of the cross, which is that we are set free from self-effort. We don't have to prove anything. We don't have to work our way out of the hole that we've dug for ourselves. We can simply receive your forgiveness and go on and serve. Thank you for the joy that, that it brings to us. Thank you for that rich blood that you shed for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.